what we had agreed to do, uh, Kevin is taking one perspective of the Christmas story, and Brian takes another perspective of it, and my perspective is the one of uh, Mary and, to a lesser extent, Joseph. And so as we look at Christmas and we try to behold, right, behold the wonder of Christmas, we partly sort of recognize before we even get started that we, if we're honest, we sometimes have lost the wonder of Christmas. That it's a season, it's a consumer holiday, it's whatever it is, but we don't feel a great sense of awe and wonder as it comes up. And so this sense of of wonder is what we're trying to sort of recapture as we go through this month. So we're going to start reading in Luke chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 26, it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, for she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Have you ever gotten a a message, voicemail, text message, email, Snapchat? Can you send Snapchat messages? We don't know. Have you ever gotten a message that's just a little too nice when it starts out? And you, you get that, that real quick skepticism that comes up when, it's like when your kids, you're at the store and you're just happening to go past the toy aisle and they, they you know what, you're so handsome, dad. And you're going, wait a minute. I feel like something is, is up here. As a pastor, you, you usually get these emails on Monday morning. You get great sermon pastor emails. They train you in seminary. If you see great sermon pastor on Monday morning, just delete and move on as fast as possible because it always comes with a but. Monday morning is the great sermon, but email. Great sermon yesterday, um, but I noticed that the parking lot wasn't whatever. Great sermon, but the the coffee was, you know, like three degrees warmer than usual, and I don't know if that's a thing. Great sermon, but is a thing you get on Monday morning as a pastor. Everybody knows that feeling, though, when you're being uh, buttered up. It creates skepticism when, when you feel like somebody's unnecessarily or kind of unnaturally being uh, sweet to you. Mary maybe has a little of this, and, and before we even get to it, I, I looked up, I couldn't help myself, because as I was thinking about this idea of being buttered up, I thought, well, where do we get that phrase? So curiosity got the best of me, and I googled it, and I went down this whole rabbit hole of how we got there. And so one version, there's kind of two, two arguments, okay, there's a whole subculture that's arguing about this right now. One says that it was, it's literally just to put butter on toast, which makes it more uh, appealing, which is not very fun. So I, I am in the other camp, which says that in ancient India, there was a religious sect that got balls of butter and threw them at the statues of their gods as an offering. And I was like, that's for me. <laughs> so next time you think somebody is buttering you up, just that picture will come to mind. You can run with that. So, so Mary, is what we're talking about, Mary hears that, um, that she's highly favored, And you almost hear in the way the scripture reads that she's starting to wonder, what's the catch? Verse 29 says, she was troubled 
and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The Greek word for wonder there is actually the same word for taking an audit. It's an accounting word. Tim Keller says Mary's response to this angel's appearance was, quote, furiously rational. We look at the story and we see Mary in this moment and we think, oh, think of the magic. And it says she takes an accountant's view at what the angel is laying in front of her and she says, let's think about this for a minute. Like there's a reason we called it Behold the Wonder of Christmas and not Behold an Audit of Christmas Facts. Like, Like nobody would come because that's not magical. That's not wonderful. But that's what Mary's doing. She's taking an audit of what's happening right in front of her. She's taking stock of the whole situation. Basically saying, is this real? And if it's real, then what's going on? And if if I can figure out what's going on, then what's coming next? What's happening here? What happens is as we read this and we consider that that she's not simply caught up in the wonder, but she's, she's auditing the situation in front of her, what we get to do is watch our own kind of arrogance and laziness about Christmas sort of get blown up. Because if we're honest... Or maybe I should say if I'm honest, and you could choose to include yourself if you want. We either see Christmas, and I either see Christmas, as either sort of this magical thing that that one couldn't help but get swept up in, or maybe something that was attended by simpletons in a simpler time, and they just sort of went with it. Like we read the Christmas story, and we we think, ah, that's so quaint. Her, Her faith sure is endearing, isn't it? But it's simple. She lived in my world in the sophisticated 2017. I don't know that, I don't know it would go like that. We like to think that anyway. We see Christmas a lot like we see Christmas movies from previous generations, where we're, we're sort of willing to overlook all the obvious holes in the plot and just go with it. This is in film, this is called the willing suspension of disbelief. So anytime you watch a movie that's totally unrealistic, you engage in the willing suspension of disbelief. You walk into the theater knowing this is not real, there's no way this is realistic, but if I just let myself believe it for the next two hours, I will be entertained. So around Christmas, who watches Elf around Christmas, the the movie Elf, right? People like this movie. There is nothing realistic about the man-sized elf that came from the North Pole to meet his biological father in New York City, right? And if you think about it rationally, you're like, this is total nonsense and I'm wasting my life. But with the willing suspension of disbelief, you're able to be entertained for a couple hours because it's funny. I just can't believe that it's real. Otherwise, I have some, some issues. This is what we do with all of them. So, so by show of hands, favorite. So if there was one movie you had to watch around Christmas, what is that one movie that's on in your house every year? So, so Christmas Story, just a quick show. Of Christmas Story, people? Okay. Um, Christmas Vacation, people? Yeah. Um, elf? We already did Elf. A few people have got on the Elf train. That's a late, late bloomer there. A Wonderful Life, the classicists in the room. Yeah, you're so special. <laughs> Home Alone. Okay, Home Alone 2. <laughs> Home Alone 3. <laughs> Trick question, Kevin's not in it. It's not real. <laughs> so watch it back. And then think about it through this lens. Either that movie has this certain magic and you're just willing to overlook all the silliness that is unrealistic. Or, for a lot of them, we go, oh, it's just a simpler time. You know, that sort of thing. It was just a simpler time. That was real back then. 
It's not now. And every movie you watch, if you put it into 2017 terms, they all totally fall flat. So, so watch Home Alone and, and wonder what would have happened if, if Kevin had had a cell phone. Like the movie's over four minutes in. Hey, Mom, you left me at home. I'm still here. Can y'all turn around? Sure, we got you. Okay, click. Credits rolled. Movie's over. Somebody pointed out on, on the internet uh, recently that something else could have really helped the plot in that movie is if the dad had cared at all about his son. <laughs> and I'd never watched it that way, and I watched it again, and I was like, oh, gosh. <laughs> She's freaking out that her, her child is, is left at home alone, and he's like, eh, you know, whatever. It'll be okay. Which is either a terrible thing about parents, uh, fathers in this culture, or uh, maybe they, they miscast him. But Clark Griswold is putting the lights up on his house. This is, this is the, the big subplot of the whole movie. Clark Griswold is putting all these lights up. He keeps trying to get them to work. They're not quite working out. If Clark Griswold could walk into 2017 Home Depot and buy three of those LED laser things, he'd be done. Like half the movie is over because he would have snow and, and all kinds of things being shot onto his house, and it's just over. And so we think about it, we watch it, we go, well, it sure was a simpler time. sure was nice. And we do the same thing with the actual Christmas story. We've somehow conflated them in our minds, and we look back and we go, yeah, man, it must have just been simpler. Maybe they just got swept up. We've lost the wonder of Christmas because we've assigned simplicity to the story. We either think of it as just a simple story from long ago, or we've assigned some sort of matte finish sentimentality to it. like we no longer take account of what happened. We no longer sit back and audit what's going on. And when we do, we find that Mary is not exhibiting uh, simplicity. Mary is exhibiting sophistication. She isn't being swept up by the moment. In fact, in the moment, she's finding herself skeptical. She's, she's expressing a healthy skepticism. Listen to it. She reacts exactly like you would. She's troubled in her heart and she wonders what this could be. And the Bible is okay with this. Like, we're, we've somehow been conditioned to think that skepticism is not allowed in church. Like, you have to come in and just believe everything 100%. And if you have any questions, doubts, or skepticism, this is not the place for you. And it's just not that way. This is, this is the place for skepticism. Skepticism is modeled over and over throughout Scripture that the heroes of the faith look and listen to God and they go, Are you, sh- are you sure? Could it really What, what we have to do is, is kind of regrant ourselves the permission to be skeptical. And then we also have to extend that to others so that we run into people in culture who would go, you know what, this is a good story, but I'm actually just not sure. We would go, that's a good place to be. Because there's really two types of skepticism. There's two types of doubts that come out of that. The, the first type is a doubt or a skepticism that builds barriers. This is the sort of uh, doubt or barrier that gets raised when if you're, if you're particular for one political party and someone brings up another pr- political party's uh, ideology or viewpoint, you put the barrier up because I think I'm right on this. I want to stay right on this. Man, I don't want to open the, the, worm, the can of worms that if, if something is not right. So, so let me just, yeah, 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 that's great. Move on. This is the, um, the, the parenting thing. There's two types of, of parents. There's parents who are asking other people for advice, and then there's parents who don't want to hear other people's advice because they just want to convince themselves they're probably doing it as best as they can. And so there's a skepticism that says, um, I have doubts about what you're telling me, and my doubts exist to keep whatever you're saying from being real. That's one skepticism. The other is actually healthy. This is the, doubt, the, the skepticism and the doubt that asks questions. 
And it asks them not to stay right like the first one. The first one wants to stay right. I think I'm right and I want to stay this way. The second one actually wants to get right. So this is the, the one that asks questions because we actually want to know the truth. That we're, we're a little bit afraid, but we're willing to open the door because I don't want to stay right. I actually just want to get right. And there's these two kind of channels we can run in with that. And one bends towards cynicism and the other bends towards truth. They're both about control, ultimately. All of it's really about control. When we doubt things that could be true because we're afraid that we might have been proven wrong, that's just about us maintaining control or the illusion of control that we hold. The reality is everyone is a little bit skeptical. Everyone carries doubt, but which type do you carry? Do you carry the type of doubt, the type of skepticism that says, I want to stay right, assuming you are? Or do you carry the one that says, I want to get right because I may not have it all? If it's about control, then the only way that we kind of get over that hump is through surrender. This is where Mary finds herself. Mary finds herself in a moment where she has healthy skepticism. She's, she's wondering, she's pondering, she's auditing this, this thing that's being told to her. And she has to figure out, what am I going to do with it? And at this point, she knows what's going on. Like, she knows the story that's being told to her. And what she's done in her accounting is she's had to be honest and say, So, if I go along with this, I'm going to be a pregnant virgin. Cool. I'm, I, I'm willingly accepting a tattoo of sorts on my forehead and one on the forehead of my child that pregnant virgin, illegitimate. Like people can count. So when we, when we oversimplify or we put sentimentality on the Christmas story, we're like, man, isn't this just magical? And her faith was so great. And she was, ah, and then it's just, it's, it's great. And then there's Jesus in the manger and now it's great. And what we forget is people could count. So Mary knows people can count. And so Mary knows that when Jesus is two and she's been married for 14 months, that everybody's going to go, one, two, three, four. Wait a minute, Mary. It's a stain. It's a cultural marker that people are going to know for the rest of her life. And it's not 2017 culture either. They're going to know that either Mary and Joseph were intimate before they were married, which is highly forbidden, or that Mary had something going on on the side, highly forbidden. And either way, whether she's a fornicator or an adulteress, neither of those are good choices for her, right? But this is what she's facing. This is the audit that's coming through. In addition to that, she's looking at at her child to be born, and she's going, I will be fornicator or adulteress in everyone's eyes, and he will be illegitimate. Those are my options. What's her response to that? As she does this audit, her response is, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. She takes stock of what's coming. She takes stock of the weight of what's being told to her by the angel. She says, I am the Lord's servant. This is like heavy. Mary looks and says, shame and disgrace that I didn't earn. I'll take it. And what else is going on is even more fascinating is that she's told you will call him Jesus. His name will be Jesus. You know anything about the Hebrew culture, you know that names matter. Names matter a ton. Names not only signified what this child is going to be and what your plans for them are, but, but naming your child signifies a few other things. You're the authority. That you're in control, that you're over the child, that you're in charge. You name the kid. That's just sort of how life works. Angel says, not this child. You don't name Jesus. Jesus 
names you. You're not in charge of Jesus. Jesus is in charge of you. You don't call the shots with him. He calls the shots for you. Not only are you going to be pregnant as a virgin, but you're also going to have this child and you're going to name him Jesus. His name is preset. His name predates you, Mary. Which in a very real sense, in a really cool moment, we get to step back and go in a very real way. Mary was the first Christian. Because Mary was the first one to submit her life to Christ, if you think about it that way. She lays her life down for the sake of Christ. Religion says you can only be saved by taking your life and bending it to certain rules. Christianity says you can only be saved by losing your life and bending it to the ruler. And like Mary got this first. She's probably 15, 16 years old. She is pregnant and unmarried, and her name is known throughout history. Not because of her great conquests, not because of her incredible wartime courage, because of her humble surrender, because of her willingness to let go of control in the moment and take on something bigger than herself. Humble surrender. In the Old Testament, you see Abraham being sent out, and the scripture says, not knowing whither he went. Humble surrender to someone's greater plan. Mary, so much the same, steps out from her faith, not knowing whither she goes. She doesn't know what's coming next. She doesn't know how this is all going to pan out. She just says, I'm, I'm willing. I'm your servant. And she's only the precursor because then Christ comes. Her son, God in human form, goes to the cross, takes his hands off his life in Gethsemane. Before he goes to the cross, he, he asks the father, if, if there's any way that I don't have to do this, if there's any way you can take this cup of this pain, this suffering, if there's any way, take it but not my will, but yours. I am your servant. Jesus goes out not knowing whither he went. He takes his hands off of his own life. And in surrendering his life and bending his life, you and I know hope and freedom and joy in a way that we never would have otherwise. We didn't know it because of Jesus' great conquest. We know because of Jesus' great surrender. This should stir us in the moment. This should, this should kindle in us awe and wonder. This should shape our lives. This season should be a reminder every year of humble surrender. Where we take an audit, where we take account and we go, huh, where, where have I not surrendered? Where does my life not look like Mary's, not look like Christ? America is marked as being a place where people are at white knuckle about control. We are, it's just who we are. We're fiercely independent. In so many ways, it's a great thing. But the dark side of that is we are always looking to be in control. And everything that we love, everything we work, it, it's all tied back to this desire to be in control, which is ultimately tied back to this desire to be our own God. I'm not proud of the story I'm about to tell you. It's, uh, it's going to seem silly to you, but it seems, uh, it was very troubling to me. The other day I was going to uh, pick up something from the pharmacy. And I was hungry. And it was like mid-afternoon, and so it was kind of that 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock snack time. And I thought, well, I can drive through the pharmacy, which is way easy. And it was cold. I think it was raining. I don't know. I can, I can just drive through, but I want a snack. And in my head, I'm having that like angel and, and demon conversation. And like the, the angel's like, yeah, but if you you stay in your car it'll be warm and but the demon's like but if you get out you get chocolate and so i'm kind of working through this thing in my head and i figured out what i'm going to do is I, you know what i'm just going to go in 
And I like, you know, I like the control of being in my car, obviously. But I'm going to go in. So I walk into the store. I pick up a snack. I grab a drink. I find myself checking out and walking back out the store without having been over to the pharmacy. I get back in my car. I start my car. I drive around, and I go through the drive through pharmacy like a total weirdo. And I'm like having this existential crisis in the moment because I can't figure out why I'm doing this. I'm like, no, you were in the store. Why are you driving through right now? You could already have it. And there's like four or five cars deep because it's not a pretty day. And so I'm going to have to wait here for 20 or 30 minutes. But man, the heat's on and I got this podcast I was listening to. I was right in the middle of and I can kind of just take a break for a second. And, and I started thinking about it as I crept up in line. And I went, that was about control, wasn't it? That somewhere within me, some tiny little sliver of my soul was like, when you're not in your car, you're not in control. But it, wouldn't it be nice to be in your car with those snacks still in total control? Some of you are smiling a little too big because you've done this before. But I just thought about it. I was like, I, I don't know why this brings such shame on me. But I think it's some sort of like reflection of some greater thing in my life that I really like to be in control. I'm not going to look at my wife right now because she's nodding. <laughs> yes, she does. It's just a strange thing that we do. Everything in our lives is sort of just generally tied back to this longing for control. And then we don't even have to look at them, but all of our sin life is tied back to that too. Abuse is about control. Lust is about control. Covetousness is about control. Greed is about control. Pride is about control. And all of this control ties back to wanting to be my own savior. So to surrender is like the hardest thing to do for us because we are terrified of losing control. Like the Christian idea that we would lose control, we would give up control, and in our surrender we would be saved is so counterintuitive to the very nature of humanity. Tell me one other place in the history of the world where surrender meant winning. You know who surrenders? Losers. You know who raises the white flag? The side that loses. You know who, who kneels when they don't have a chance to win the game anymore? They'll, they'll lose it. It's just, we surrender. It's over. Christianity is the only place where surrender means victory. Because it isn't ours. It just takes us realizing that victory is not something we can gain on our own. Victory is only gained in surrender. So it's so wildly counterintuitive that we have to remind ourselves regularly, and Christmas is an incredible time to do that, that in losing our lives, we gain the ultimate treasure. Last point, angel t- uh, the angel tells Mary in the narrative, don't be afraid. The angel tells the shepherds, don't be afraid. The angel tells Joseph, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You keep hearing this in the Christmas narrative. Don't be afraid. Of what? It's as if the next line should be, you are about to lose your life. Don't be afraid. Hey, Mary, don't be afraid. You're about to lose your life. Hey, Joseph, remember those plans and those dreams and those hopes Don't be afraid, but you're about to lose them. We are people marked by loss aversion. We will do anything we can to avoid loss. Psychologists have proven this a thousand times over, that people would much rather rather not lose than even win. If you put uh, equal odds in front of somebody, I'm, I'm more concerned about not losing than the possibility of winning. And you can stack the odds really high, and I still just don't want to lose. It's just, it's, it's in us. It's wired in us. And what this story is offering to Mary and Joseph is the only way for anything to happen, the only way for gain to come, the only way for salvation to reach mankind is in loss. 
I think about this a lot. I don't want to lose my life, right? I actively avoid loss. I really like my life. I like my wife. I like my children. Occasionally, we like our dog. Not that often. And I know, like, I know in my, somewhere in my, in my head, I know cerebrally, I know, I know in my soul, I know heaven is objectively better than this. I know that. I don't want to leave this. I want to live to be 174 years old because this is awesome. I don't want to leave this. I'm afraid of losing what I know because my fear of the unknown is greater. It's loss aversion. I don't skydive. I don't bungee jump. The most dangerous thing I do in any given week is eat Taco Bell. I'm with him. Mary and Joseph are presented with plans that will cost them their lives. It will cost them every plan they had ever made, every dream they had held. It will cost them everything. They have to surrender. They have to willingly lose. After the shepherds had visited and paid their respects in this cave with this baby, this God with us child, who's lying in a feeding trough, Scripture says in in Luke 2, says, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. But as all this has come to pass, as all of this is kind of unfolding in front of her, as she's sort of taking stock, I've done this thing, I've had this baby, history is forever changed if what that angel said is true. And the shepherds come to worship and she takes these things and she ponders them in her heart. Like, like maybe she got it. Like maybe she was the first person to get it. That salvation is in surrender. That the only way to hold all of the beauty that God has on offer is to let go of all the lesser things that we're clinging to. That's what Christmas is about. The only way to grab hold of the incredible beauty that God has to offer through the person of Jesus Christ is to let go of all the lesser things that we're assigning value to. They don't compare. Jesus later said in Luke 9, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. That's what he's saying. He's saying if you are white knuckle holding on to control if you're a white knuckle holding on to everything in your life and you're not realizing that it is a lesser thing compared to the glory and the beauty that I am pouring into you, then you're going to miss it. Mary and Joseph gave up their lives for the sake of Jesus and whatever they lost, they gained treasure that is unspeakably, unfathomably more beautiful. So our job as we think about this season, our job as we walk through Christmas lights and snow on the ground and and there is wonder in it and there is magic in it and there is a sentimentality to it. And those things aren't wrong. It's our job to take account, to walk through it and, and audit the world from time to time and ask ourselves, what am I treasuring in my heart in this season? What is the thing that really that really gets me moving? What's the thing that I'm actually looking forward to? And for so many of us, what is the good thing that's a reflection of a greater thing? What do you really love about Christmas? And when, if you really sat and thought about it, you'd realize it's just a reflection of something better. It's a lesser thing, and it's easier to grab onto than that greater thing. My family loves lights. If you have a house that is all lit up or some of those houses that have like the the light show that goes on with a tune your radio to 87.9 and it plays together and they're synchronized and my family will be there like you just i come home and no one's there they're out looking at lights that's what they're doing 
what, what, the only thing my kids wanted is, Dad, will you please put lights on the house? Okay. They love lights. And that's a good thing. But it's a reflection of a greater thing, right? The season where light sort of pierces the night, the season where, where lights create this wonder in us is actually just a, it's a symbol, it's a reflection of the greater thing that God sent true light into a dark world. And so when we see lights, we go, no, it's light. When we get gifts, we go, no, but the gift. Everything we love are these lesser things, but they're not bad things if we'll use them to shine the light on the greater thing. So what are you treasuring in your heart this season? My prayer is that we would be a community of believers that would treasure not what we might gain, but what we might lose for the sake of Jesus. May we lose our doubts that build walls. May we lose our white-knuckled control of our everyday. May we lose our fear and our insecurity. May we lose our grip on lesser things when they're holding us back from greater things. May we lose our lives and gain life in Jesus, a fresh burst of true wonder around the treasure of salvation and Christmas. We get to take communion now. Lord's Supper. Jesus gives us this way that as believers, as his followers, that we can remember him. He told his followers, when you take of the bread, remember me. It's, it's my body given up for you. It should remind you. When, you. when you drink of the cup, it symbolizes the blood that was poured out for you and for everyone so that sins could be forgiven. That's what this is for. And so every week, we get the chance to come and do that. So if you're a follower of Christ, uh, like to invite you to that. In the next three songs, as the band's going to come back up in a minute, we're, we're going to have a chance to do that. Remember, recapture the wonder. Before you walk up, go, God, what is it that I'm treasuring? And let me treasure you. If you're skeptical here, if you're a guest and you go, you know what, I, I'm still in the skeptical camp, and that's not for me because I'm not sure I believe any of that. Contrary to any indication that you would be in the wrong place, I think you're in the perfect place. There's no better place to be skeptical than here. There's no better place to chase truth than here. And so if that's you, feel no pressure to come up. This is something that, uh, that people who've kind of declared that their followers do, and for everyone else, if you're not comfortable, we're not checking up on you. We're not taking attendance on who comes forward. What we want is for your healthy skepticism to drive you to truth. My prayer is that uh, having been a skeptic for a long time, that your doubts would lead you to truth, and that your truth would lead you to wonder, and so today might be the start of real faith. And if that's in your chair, in your seat, as the words are sung, and, and those sort of just resonate in your soul, then that's my prayer for you. Because in this season, there is great wonder. And when we take account, when we get quiet in the presence of the Lord, we find it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this season. Thank you for dividing our lives in such a way that we can see a change on the horizon for a shift in weather or uh, the early evening darkness. These little things that indicate in our souls that uh, change is coming. Father, thank you that uh, there are these seemingly benign kind of traditions that float around us that can remind us of you. 
God, I pray that you would turn our hearts back towards you, that you would use all the things in this culture to uh, remind us of your goodness and your glory, that they would be reflections of your grace. Father, I pray for each of our uh, skeptical hearts, that sliver in us that isn't quite sure, that wonders, that doubts. God, I pray that that would get engaged deeply. And that rather than leading us to a wall to be built, it would lead us to truth. It would lead us to you. Father, thank you that in surrender to you, there is victory and life and hope and joy. God, find us at your feet again. Find us in this place again, recognizing the true wonder. It's not magic. It's not sentimentality. True wonder is based in the truth of you. So God, thank you for Jesus, for his birth that we celebrate, for his life, for his death on the cross, his resurrection. Thank you that in those things we have hope and life and salvation. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name.